guess what's been happening to me all day, Jesse? What's been happening to you all day? Horrible hiccups, like nauseating, about to make me throw up hiccups. I've had it four times today, and there's been only one way to get rid of it, and that is to drink water with the water glass tilted upside down so that you're pouring it into your mouth while you're hunched over the sink. And it feels like you're effectively drown, trying to drown yourself and your body reacts as if that's what's happening. And that's the only way I've found to stop it. You're waterboarding yourself basically is what yeah. that sounds like. Yeah. And, and my body is like, what the fuck are you doing? Stop it. Okay. So if I start hiccuping uncontrollably and throw up on the mic and the keyboard, you know, then we'll have to save that for a bonus episode. Yeah, that's podcast gold. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the audience wants. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> You are listening to the Jaunty Mantis, and I'm Jesse. With me, as always, is Maddie. Say hello, Maddie. Hello, Maddie. Uh, what is our creative question for curious gamers today? Our creative question for curious gamers today, Jesse, is why should you GM? Uh, because it's fucking awesome. Yeah. I agree with that. Do you? <laughs> yeah, I totally do. Yeah, because it's the best thing ever. It really is. Yeah. So I think uh, why we're on this question, one of the things that you will see around in the community, whatever that means, is there's a GM shortage, apparently. Yeah. Hey, do, do you run games? Do I personally run games? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I run games, so that's like, two out of two on this podcast alone <laughs> a shortage maybe yeah. the reports are exaggerated that's true that's true but isn't kind of the point of this podcast to help inspire people to become gms or am i overstepping the no i really podcast? think if we had any sort of positive impact it would be that to, to be like you know we demystify it maybe a little bit and be like hey system system does cool things but that's mm -hmm. a toolkit like you should you should do this because it's fun so right. uh what, what are your favorite parts about gming well before i get into my favorite parts what i wanted I th what i think we should do to set this up if you don't mind is okay. why don't we tell the audience how we got started gming because i think that's an important part of the process if we if we're going to inspire people to become a game master maybe we should tell them how we became a game master in our respective uh lives or gaming careers so how did you become a game master oh god that's i'm not sure what i mean so the age that i started playing at and the time in the hobby uh my, i think my first little tentative forays were basically just doing uh what a friend of mine george calls white room where you'd roll up characters and have them fight to figure out how character creation and combat worked interesting and i don't necessarily know that i'd call that gming other than i was the one holding the rule book um but then as time went on uh it was basically like i had all these books i loved the potential of the story in them and i thought it was probably not going to work very well if i tried to force other people to read them and then run a game mm -hmm. so it was because of a gm shortage i picked up the dm screen <laughs> uh and started doing it and um sometimes i think i like it <laughs> sometimes you think you like it i like gming all the time it's a strange drug that i'm weirdly addicted to well i also think you're better at it than i am so. no way mm -mm. i learned it from watching you dad oh thanks <laughs> also give me back my stash <laughs> I became a GM because I got a set of books that took place in a strange 
post-apocalyptic fantasy setting called Dark Sun. I was in like a Barnes and Nobles or a Borders or whatever kind of bookstore existed back then. And uh, I was going through the section with the role-playing games and I had looked at the Shadowrun book and I'd looked at, you know, the player's handbook and I'd looked at it for D&D and I'd looked at all these other things. And then I don't know how I found it, but I pulled Dark Sun out of the shelf and I was like, what the fuck is this? This looks incredible. And I had barely enough money in my pocket to buy it and I bought it immediately and didn't even wait to get back to I like I went there with my parents or something um uh, or my brother I don't remember but like I didn't even wait to get back in the car I had it open and was looking at it like as we were walking out of the place this is the uh the magenta faded edge box with the brahm uh cover mm-hmm. painting of dudes yelling at each other while holding <laughs> bone weapons yeah 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 and uh and I was supposed to go to bed that night on time. And as I, as I mentioned in the, our introductory episode, I basically turned off all the lights, got underneath the covers with a flashlight and basically read everything in that box, like front to back over and over and over again. And the thing is, is I realized that we were never the, the group that I was playing and we would never play this. That's the first thing I realized. I was like so excited about it. I'm like, this is so cool. This this is like uh, this weird thing you can do with Dungeons and Dragons, but it's not like Dungeons and Dragons. Like the halflings are cannibals and there's these weird thrycreen creatures that live in the desert and there's psionics and what the fuck is psionics? And so I was just in love with it, but I realized that we were never, ever, ever going to play it. And I kind of sat on it for years And then when I eventually got into um, a somewhat consistent gaming group, um, you know, one of the things you were invited to do with that group, because it was a bunch of theater kids, was you were invited to run a game, just a one shot, you know, and it kind of became an expectation in that group. And I was like, this is my chance to run Dark Sun in a one shot, and I'm going to do it in a way where they are temporarily transported to Athens (laughs) and they hated it. Oh yeah. Oh my God. This, so here's the thing I admire about stand-up comedians, stand-up comedians, really the only way, as I understand it, that they can get better at what they do is by going on stage and just eating their balls over and over again. This goes for male and female comedians, like balls, as far as you know what I mean? Uh, but you just eat it in front of an audience of people and that's how you get better. And there's a certain aspect of GMing that I think is like that too. And if I'm good at anything in life, it's because I've failed miserably at it first. And that was my, one of my first big hurting failures in life was trying to run dark sun for my friends. And they just, they fucking hated it. It was horrible. They were like, don't ever do that again. Uh, and so, um, but I fell in love with the idea that we could, we could run games and, you know, here's, here's the big secret about me. I didn't run a good game for years. I just kept running games. I kept trying anytime there was an opportunity. If, if the DM was sick or we didn't have enough people to play, I'd be like, well, I'll run a game and you could hear everybody kind of like, Ugh. you know what I mean? <laughs> And to their credit, they went along with it and they're not bad people. We were friends. But my point is, is like, I just kept failing at it over and over and over again until I finally started figuring out how to do it and what makes it work. So that's my origin story with, with GMing. (laughs) Yeah. My, I mean, my memory, like I must've been running games when I was 13 and 14. I think I did probably way more shadow run. Mm. um than i did D. um i mean as has been said uh on the podcast before i don't know if it's an episode that's aired by the time you hear this good listener but uh, i'm the king <laughs> of the impulse buy so like my current ridiculously breaking the bookshelf collection of role-playing games is like the fourth collection i've had in my life and the first one started during this time that we're talking about so i 
got into it mainly because I wanted to use these worlds and these ideas. I could never really just stick to one. I always wanted to sort of implement it. Um, and it's sort of, uh, I mean, there's like Matt, Maddie and I have very different, I think, strengths as GMs. Mm-hmm. Maddie's is character. Um, in my opinion, like the NPCs you meet in Maddie's game are weird and wild and woolly <laughs> and, uh, maybe monomaniacal but like mm-hmm. they're they're going to be interesting people to interact with maddie tells my me that mine is pacing um mm-hmm. i would also say efficiency like yeah you, i'm always looking you, for a tool or a hack to strip things down or simplify it yeah um, we don't waste time in scenes in your games if something isn't working we're moving on if somebody if the if the player characters aren't um, responding, something happens. Like Jesse is an extremely efficient game master, and it's a skill that I haven't seen in many others, including myself. There's a tendency, I think, for a lot of us as game masters to kind of let players, you know, run the table, so to speak. Like, what do you guys want to do? And then let them just go wherever they're going to go. And Jesse will cut it off at a certain point. He will he will make combats valuable instead of letting them just stretch on forever. He will give the characters what they need to proceed forward and he'll make it look like he's had this plan the entire time. And he could have showed up to a game with no prep and, uh, you know, just kind of looked things over five minutes before we started and he would sell it like he wrote the damn adventure. And it, it is, it is a very unique talent in game mastering. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's, I, I just, I, I really also too like to set the scene with relying on my po- degree in poetry by doing really florid exposition, like over the top, sort of like, you know, deep voice, serious looks, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, uh, and seeing people's reaction to that, why why do I GM? I, I want to see their reaction. I want to see what happens next. Like, uh, good advice as always for GMs, why you should do it if you're brand new uh, is you have an idea and you want to see what happens with it. I think just curiosity. Curi- mm-hmm. How do these rules work? That's one person's curiosity, but that's not everybody's. Uh, how would people react to the storyline I've created is another one. Like, or... How would people react if I did this funny voice? One of the things I was thinking about this actually today from my years of GMing is like, somehow I don't think it makes me weird or awful to talk to. And maybe I'm just wrong and I have some blinders on, but like I do voices as a normal person, like little character bits, like for humor to make a joke and looking around, I'm like, oh yeah, not a lot of people do that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, But I do, you know. Yeah. And you do it really well. And I think that also, I think that goes hand in hand with, um, like we mentioned in our kind of gamer origin stories that, um, my friendship with Jesse comes from, um, this amazing gift that he's been able to give me without trying, which is, you know, I, I was very, um, very reclusive about my gamer side i didn't tell people i played dungeons and dragons i refused to talk about it in front of other people if somebody mentioned it and and talked about was trying to talk about it with me i would freeze up and act like i didn't know what they were talking about i was ashamed to be a gamer back then um and jesse was not and he would talk about it with anybody under any circumstances and that seeing his freedom to do that allowed me to kind of just unclench and start being myself and he does that for players in the games that he runs as well. He enables people to be able to play their characters. I'm pretty sure uh, Maddie has actually seen me uh, at a college party with a beer in hand talk to a pretty girl about Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. So, and this pretty was sure. before it was cool, mind you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And now that girl's my wife. <laughs> Great success, everybody. But uh, for me, I think that people should GM because it's like 
for me, it's like if have you ever watched a show or a movie and you know something about that universe and maybe the people you're watching with, they don't. Like you're watching Star Wars and, and a character comes on screen who's walking out of the desert and he's about to get in a in a potential gunfight with the uh, marshal of this town in on Tatooine and you're like, holy shit, that's Cad Bane. And your nerd, uh, your all of your nerdness just goes off inside your head. You now have this really weird connection to the material. And I know this experience because of, we've been watching, my girlfriend and I have been watching a lot of Star Wars recently. She doesn't know who these characters are when we started this journey and we've been watching all the shows and movies and but it's like, holy shit, that's live action cat fucking Bane. Exactly. And that's what it's like to GM for me. It's like when you plant something into a game or story and you see the players pick it up and then run with it, it gives me the same kind of energy and feeling as when I recognize something in a show or movie that they put there just for people who are fans of that show or movie. It's an unparalleled feeling of joy that is difficult for me to, to describe. It's like you are enabling other people's creativity and something you created and put into a story. Cause look, we're all sitting around a table or a computer screen on zoom and we're doing what is essentially what our ancestors used to do, right? Sit around a fire or a table at a pub or whatever and tell stories to each other, but it's a shared story experience and you get to be the guiding direction of that experience. So you can put something in the game and they find it and then they don't know what to do with it. Three, five, 11. Nobody knows what these numbers mean. They're supposed to mean something, but they're not picking up on it. And then you're in your brain. You're like, why aren't they trying to figure out what these numbers mean? I put them in the game. The character keeps saying them over and over and over again, but nobody seems to pick up on it. And then you have to scramble and find a creative way to introduce more information. And it's that constant, like it's that constant, um, gamble or or not a race but it's it's like an experience going on inside my head that's like how can i contribute to this push them in the right direction and it, so that's the part that i enjoy most for me so one of the things if you're thinking about it so you're you're uh you're new per, you're considering gming right mm -hmm. that, that's what i want to say very smooth transition there you're considering <laughs> gming what do you need to know? I'm asking myself this as a rhetorical question. Mm -hmm. So I would say the first things first, you don't need to have a free form grand campaign. You don't mm -hmm. need to start trying to recreate Lord of the Rings in your own universe. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly fine to pick a short section of story like a mini season, like a mini two episode arc on a TV show mm -hmm. and just do that. Yeah. I agree. I would say the first, one of the first things you need to do is you need to forgive yourself and it, and you need to understand that you don't need to be perfect. Yeah. Give yourself a ton of grace and know that your players will too. And, and in if fact, they don't, you shouldn't be playing with them. Yeah, that's that's true. But <laughs> assuming you found good people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, yeah, uh, give yourself grace as, and your players will too. And also a lot of the things that you're going to be in your head about that you fucked up, they won't know. So they, true. They won't. Players are wonderful people. They participate in the story. They're also generally lazy as fuck and won't read the rule book. Or know yeah. how their characters work and tell like the campaign's been going on for literally seven months. Uh. <laughs> yeah, you've been playing for like four or five, six sessions, and all of a sudden somebody's like, What is a storm cast again? And you were like, You were supposed to do reading. There was a book. You have the book. Do the I reading. made a reading list forever. Don't make a reading list for your players. <laughs> Save yeah. yourself some trouble. Yeah. I think that's another I think you would agree with this. That's another kind of like stage one rule for someone who's going to GM is like, don't overthink it. Don't overwork. It doesn't matter how much time and attention you put into something. It's not going to pay off for you in the way that you think the things that pay off. And maybe, you know, different Jesse and by all means, correct me. But for me, 
I used to write these elaborate Bibles of setting and all of these, you know, creation myths and things that happened and what's going on behind the scenes. And that's the stuff that always never landed very well. The stuff that landed very well was like, oh shit, I didn't think the players were going to do that once they got the goblins out of that prison cell. Wow. Okay. Well, what does that mean now? Well, it means that they could do the following things. And then I go to do the, one of those following things. And then the group surprises me again. And now we're off running on a part of the adventure that I didn't even have planned, you know, and all of my prep work went right out the window. Yeah. And here's, here's my DM paralysis. Uh, we're not, we won't go into another DM therapy. I get way up in my head about making my hook too good, making mm -hmm. my hook delicately crafted and blah, blah, blah. And you know what the hook is that people have sat around a table to tell that story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so make something vaguely hook shaped. And even if you have to say, here's your hook, right? Right. You got a hook. You got a line and a sinker, right? So start at the beginning. What do you need? You need a hook. Why do the players care? Do you have to like, here's another, th okay. Here's another thing you can do too, as a starting GM. Don't, if you're just starting out, don't let your players make their own characters. Yes. Make them for them. Definitely. That teaches you the rules of the game. Like nobody's business mm -hmm. creating characters in it or you know, we are living in an age of wonders for getting into this hobby. There is a starter box for just about every game you want to play. Grab so the true. starter box. I just recently uh, like had bought the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay uh, fourth edition starter box. I've run two sessions out of it. It's been a blast. Nobody had to make characters. Didn't have to do a session zero. They got a little brief of what they're doing. People got it like that. We mm -hmm. learn, they will teach you the rules step by step in a lot of them. Mm -hmm. uh, the One Ring RPG has a starter box where you are all Bilbo's cousins, nieces, and nephews in the period between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. It feels very much like hobbits. You go off running crazy errands for mad Bilbo. It's thematic. It's beautiful. It's woolly. It teaches you to play the game. On my shelf, I've got the Blade Runner RPG starter box. I can't wait to do that. <laughs> I just bought the pin dragon starter box because one of my bucket lists is playing the pin dragon grand campaign and you got to start somewhere, um, right? Buy a starter box or make player characters yeah, or make the characters for the players. And that and way I, you know what they're into because you wrote them. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And one of the key things you should do as a GM is look at like whether you made the characters or not. The game you're designing should be based around what those characters can do. And if you make the characters, then you know what they can do. So that means you have a leg up on designing that adventure. Yep. I think, I think to go along with that too, is if you, especially if this is your first time running the game, tell your group, this is a one shot or this is two sessions or it's three sessions, you know, set expectations. I think you're, you're, you'd be much I think like player buy-in is so essential. I remember Jesse wanted to run an exalted game um, back in the day. And it was like, for whatever reason, I couldn't be less excited about it at first. It wasn't until I looked at some of the books, found a type of exalted that I wanted to play. And then, you know, was able to make that work. Um, but I had this like intimidation factor where I was like, okay, so we're going to start this whole other campaign now. How long is this going to go for? What if I don't like it? How do I get out of it? If I don't, am I going to hurt Jesse's feelings? I know he's really excited about this. Like he's my best friend. We should, I should give it a shot. But if you're worried about, you know, your interaction with the group, just be like, Hey, this is a one shot or this is a three session game, you know, or we'll be done in a month you know, set expectations so that your players are like, oh, okay. So my buy-in for this is very minimal. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And yes, I would have been very hurt <laughs> <laughs> because exalted is the single best setting in role-playing games. <laughs> it turned out to be a good time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What are some key GM mistakes? Do you think, what are some early mistakes that get made? 
I, th- I think we've covered one of I mean, one of them is, is assuming you have to run this long running epic campaign. Mm-hmm. You, you don't, you, you don't have the skill to do that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your players are not going to give you the buy-in you want, and it's just going to lead you to disappointment and burnout right when you're getting started. Please don't do that to yourself. Right. Um, worrying too much about rules knowledge. And, and maybe this is a weird thing for me to say because my brain is wired to think of RPG books rules because, mm-hmm. you know, like I can pick one up and be like, oh, this is how combat works. This is the skill system. These are the token spins. Great. I know it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody does that. Um, thinking you have to describe all of the rules at once is probably a big one. What do you think? I think early mistakes. I think an important one would be that if you are if you're going to run a game, and I, I I'm a big fan of this. Like role playing games is the perfect environment to steal ideas. If you saw a show you love or liked or an idea, um, if you want to do the Wheel of Time where men self destructive they have magical ability it makes them insane or whatever use it but own it you know as soon as you can you know if you're describing a setting um if you want to do your own setting describe where your what your ideas are and where they came from and i think when you set those again setting expectations so maybe the mistake is to not be too ambitious creativity in, in creativity Use an established setting if you want. Use generic D&D. Keep it simple for yourself. You know, you have the, like, being a GM is almost a thankless job to a certain extent. Um, uh, so if you're But it's still st- fucking awesome, so you should do it. So it's not that <laughs> thankless. Well, our group says thank you. So it's possible. Uh, so I would say that first mistake then is just to put an asterisk next to it is like, if it's your first couple of times playing, just lean on something that already exists. You know, there's a generic D&D Forgotten Realms setting. Use it. You know, don't make that part too hard on yourself. Focus on what it takes to run the game. Yeah, and uh, also buy The Lazy Dungeon Master by Michael Sher. Oh my God. Yeah, that should be the Dungeon Master Guide. Yeah. For 5e D&D should be that book. Yeah. That book... That book will level you up. You know, if you've never run a game or you're trying to get better at being a game master, get that fucking book. It will help you in so many ways. If you've been running games for years, buy that fucking book because it will change the way you think about game prep and running a game. There's a link on the website. Read the book for free. Under Creative Commons, can we throw throw this in the show notes? In case yeah, just send it, it to me. Yeah, okay. and I'll I'll put it in the show notes for sure. Cool, cool. Yeah, the that is an invaluable resource. It's one of the best books about running games I've ever seen, and it's so simplistic. And that's yeah, the beauty would, of it. Yeah, that that's I would say too. If you want to level up as a DM, like this. Again, I, I lean towards this. I'm worried people think I'm being shaded by this. Is don't watch actual plays. Mm, okay. Like when you're starting out, don't watch actual plays for how to DM. Yeah. Because you're watching people who, in some cases, are professional voice actors with decades <laughs> in the hobby. It's just like, I want to learn how to figure skate. I'm going to mm-hmm. start by watching the Olympics and trying to copy those moves. Yeah. You're going to hurt yourself. Sit yeah. out. What, watching an actual play before you run a game is like watching a ton of hardcore pornography before you have sex for the first time. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's just going to be in your head the entire time. Like nobody's um, Matt Mercer, but Matt Mercer, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you you only have to be who you are. Like that would be my next piece of advice. I think that piggybacks on what you what you're saying. If you're not a voices person, don't be a voices person. Yeah, you don't have to do voices. You don't have to do voices, definitely. And if you if you don't want to speak in character as your NPCs, don't do it. 
you know, if somebody's like, if there's a, let's say there's a, a portion of the game where some characters are talking to each other at the end and it's a, you know, it's a social encounter. You don't have to sit there and say the lines in the character. You can be like, well, he tells you this. If she describes a circumstance. She says, you know, there's a seller in, in my home and this is what's going on down there. And I'm scared about it. Like she tells you that her daughter is missing and they think that she's been kidnapped, you know, like you don't have to speak as the characters. That was something I thought was absolutely necessary at first. And if I had known that maybe my GM style would be different. Well, like too, like in, in our last soulbound game, like the first person you talk to, I delivered the information in character voice and then kind of sped it up to, and over the course of talking to the next people, you also discover this, 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 and this. Yeah. So we don't, you know, that's, that's me trimming for time. We've got a two and a half hour game session. I want yeah. to get more than me just telling you everything, every clue you found, you know? Right. Um, this is the efficiency, ladies and yes, gentlemen. Yes. I agonize over what's the correct notes formats to use. So it's actually <laughs> all organized in just the way, just the way I need it. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't found the perfect one yet. Constant you, innovation. You don't have to describe every room either. Go Crib note, good DM vice. I forget where. Uh, I think I picked it up off Twitter or something, but just good DM vice for how do you describe things? three cents impressions and then a what do you do mm -hmm. you see a man he's running towards you he has red hair what do you do mm -hmm. if the players choose to interact with that you just say as he gets closer you see that he has you know two days stubble and a wart on his nose his breath smells faintly of anchovies he <laughs> says help me help me what do you do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i would also say that like in a dungeon or a castle or a forest or whatever the whatever the environment is if you want to create an expansive area you don't have to tell them what's in every single room you know back in the day we used to have a dedicated map person or at least in my group we did and they would draw the map as the uh, dm was describing it because that was a very helpful tool it was because, a role in the rules as written <laughs> yeah like in those old adventures it was easy to get lost uh because of the way they were written and i think this is something that we've evolved as gamers as you don't have to tell them about every single room in detail there's nothing more boring to me as a player as like well there's a door to the left there's a door straight ahead of you and then there's a door to the right well we go through the left one there's a bed and a table and a chest well, we open the chest there's nothing in it but clothes it's like you are wasting people's time. You're wasting your own time. You know, instead say on this level of the dungeon, there are four rooms. They all seem to have the same following things, a bed, a chest, you know, whatever. These are living quarters. You've now summed it up for them. They're not making rolls to search for hidden gold or weapons or things in the wall. Cause that's what a lot of my early games were like. I used to put secret doors in every fucking room man you get to draw the little s on your graph paper yep, like yep. <laughs> it's the s it's secret yeah and dwarves yeah, have sure. a one in six chance of discovering it if they walk by why are you rolling a d6 matt no reason mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um yeah there are some assumptions that i think we came up with that probably delayed our dungeon master progress like because in my head, and this may not be true, I need to revisit older editions of the Dungeon Master's Guide, never really told you how to be a Dungeon Master. That's mm -hmm. like, here's some optional rules you can use. Right. Well, why would I want to use them? <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you do to prep an adventure? Uh, what, what, yeah, all these things you would need to DM. And so your guide is the published adventure modules and the public published adventure modules have like, a grand history of the local area mm -hmm. and who did what to who a hundred years ago that is now set up. They have a detailed map of the town. They have a detailed map of the dungeon where each room is labeled and next to the numbers and your, your little adventure module, there is a fully written paragraph long description of everything in that room to be read out loud to the players, a friend of mine. And he does it really well. When he runs games, 
he still pre-writes scripted box text for rooms. Interesting. And I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I hate box text. I know we brought it up before, but you know I know I'm using box text like all the time, right? I know. And you're doing a very good job of it. I'm jealous. I I don't like box text. It's it's not for it's not for me. And I think if it's printed in an adventure that you're running or a starter set, you do not have to read word for word everything that's in the box that says to be read by the DM. You can provide a summary. Yeah. Do what I do. If I well, I don't like running pre-written adventures, but if I have to for whatever reason, I will look at that box text. I will pick out the things that I think are important and write them as tags. So there's a waterfall. There's a statue at the base of the waterfall. The statue has a sword clutched in its hands. I write those as tags. Waterfall, statue, sword in the hands. And that I create a list of priorities. This is what's important. And then when I go to describe the scene, I think about the kind of things that would stick out. You know, so I describe the waterfall, how the temperature drops in the area or the time of day it is, or um, then I quickly move to the things I want them to focus on because it's like, this is still a problem I have. I want to describe everything in the scene, but what I should be doing is zeroing the players in on the things that I want to, them to focus on. There's a waterfall. There's a statue. The statue has a sword clenched in its hands. I don't think that the, t I think the term game master is kind of an outdated term. Don't you? I mean, I keep defaulting to dungeon master despite like having yeah. way more shadow run experience actually in my early days than I ever did D and D, but I think the word master should be changed to something else and not because of the connotations of the word master that's everybody else's decision if that triggers you and that needs to be changed for your group have that conversation with your group but i don't think the word master game master is accurate like i would say game facilitator game yeah, enabler, facilitator you know something like that like it's not your job to be the master of the universe you know there's that dead alewives watchtower joke where he's like you know, I'm the dungeon master. Every potion you drink, every sword you find, I put it there. Like <laughs> you are not a god of the role playing game. You are your friend's helpful guide into a story, a shared story experience in which you're all just having fun together. So it's not your job to be in control of the universe. It's just your job to direct it and then be the arbiter of the rules. Yeah, respond with what makes sense in the story and the rules. That's basically all you got to do. And then uh, your prep for next time. Okay, I'm curious to see what happens when this happens. That's that's the thing you prep. You, yeah. you do not need to populate an entire town when mm -hmm. you're prepping. Keep your prep basic. Just what you need to play the next session. And one of the things I got this, again, thrown out to uh, Kevin Crawford, signed nominee, um, into the session ask your players so what do you guys want to do next time we play mm -hmm. what's your goal yeah for sure unless it's obvious like it wasn't like what are we doing next time we play we're fighting these assassins <laughs> <laughs> so what let me ask you this then jesse what is what is a gming goal you now have for yourself how long have you been a game master or a dungeon master or whatever a game facilitator how how long have it how long have you been this in this role and what's uh, something that you want to achieve next? 33 years. <laughs> and what's a goal you've set for yourself? What do you, what's something that you want to do after all this time? Uh, I want to run my own campaign that I write myself. Wow. I've okay. never done that. You've never done that. No. Okay. This is interesting. How to fruition. I've never, I mean, I've, I've started campaigns. I've never run one to completion. That's mine. Okay. I've run the curse of Strahd and that was great. That was the first campaign. Actually that we finished that in the middle of the pandemic. That's the first campaign that we finished. I've ever finished in my entire life. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, And then with another group, we did Descent into Avernus. And that is the second campaign I've ever finished. And I don't know that I need a 10 level progression one, but I would really like to, uh, on my DMing bucket list, make my own campaign. Not to say I still wouldn't steal stuff from published adventures because I do that all the time. Yeah. But, you know, make my own campaign and run it. Mm hmm. Yeah. How about you? I want to run a game completely on the rails, which I've never done before. And I've given it a fair amount of thought so far. And I, I have to admit, this is way more difficult than I thought it would be because I, I still want to have a genuinely enjoyable gamer experience for my players, but I want to direct them exactly where I want them to go. I don't want to give them the choice of what uh, they could go other places if they want. Right. So let's say the game starts off with um, the, the player characters have been captured. They're on a prisoner wagon. They're chained to each other. There's a moment where they get free. The wagon gets overturned. The horses run away. And let's say the player characters heard their captors talking about a town. I want to run a game where I'm like, you are going to that town. How do you get there? Like that's, that's the kind of on the rails game where it's like, I'm this is what's going to happen. You tell me how you got there. What kind of, you know, how did you make sure you, you had enough food and, and water? Like, you know, like that kind of thing. I'm like, I'm still trying to get it through my head as to what this would look like. You know, I didn't run games on the rails I haven't done that since I was a kid, you know, and I got pissed off if they deviated from the game that I wrote, but I run games completely differently. Now it's a much more improvisational style. It's more of a writer's room style as we've described before, you know, you're, you're, you're walking through the forest. What kind of sounds do you hear? You know, your guide is, is worried about something. He's whispering to his, his scouts to be on the lookout for something. What is it? You know what I mean? So I want to try to run a game completely on the rails where I am telling the players where to go and what to do. And then I'm asking them how it happens. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) We should have an episode about building a campaign setting where we can like draw out your ideas for what you want to do. If you oh, don't I'm mind. using an established campaign setting. I got this book. I'm going to talk about this book for a second. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Okay. So, uh, counterpoint to the Spelljammer episode. I got this 5e book just because. So, one of my gaming loves. Sorry, I keep going back. Context, context, context. I love lizard men. I love non-human mm-hmm. characters. And I love the fucking Stone Age. I don't know why. I don't know why I love the Stone Age. Only thing we ever did is Matt and I made Neanderthal brothers. <laughs> and- <laughs> One of them was a rogue. <laughs> um, but I love I love the idea of playing in the Stone Age. Like I don't, maybe it's something similar to Dark Sun because of the non-metal weapons and whatever. So the people at Atlas Games published this book called Plangea, which is Stone Age gaming. And when everything we talked about, Spelljammer missing, uh, this book has it. Oh wow. This book has like a one for one, like in, in stone age gaming in medieval fantasy gaming, you would have this, this is what it would look like in a stone age. Here's a chart like early on in the book. So you can start thinking about it. What does a castle look like in a stone age gaming, uh, a well-defended hearth fire of a rival clan, you know, like, uh, cool, cool. And then when they get into the faction section, they have like 12 threats that are these like world defining dangers that are just out there in the world. And each one is written as in a campaign that features these as the prominent threat. This is the kind of thing that's going to happen. Here's a four little threads for adventures in this for player characters, level one to four. It's one sentence. Take this to here, do this. Here's the five to eight. Here's the nine to 12 and so on all the way up to 20th level where you're facing off against whatever this massive world shaking threat is. And I'm like, that's what I need. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant. I love it. It's got great art, super colorful. 
Um, well, I want a book review from you for a bonus episode. What do you say about that? Sounds good. Awesome. Sounds like a great book. Yeah, no, I was really excited because I was like, I was at kind of at a place where I'm like, I think I'm done with 5e. I don't think neck, I don't think whatever next is that what it's called this time or one D D one. Yeah, matter. I don't know. Like I'm like, yeah, I'm probably gonna pick up Planescape and then I might call it, you know, sort of no longer be actively collecting five mm-hmm. E stuff. Uh and I don't know I want to run it anymore. And then this book came out and I'm like, I actually don't think there's a system that does what this book is asking for better. Um so cool. <laughs> like, nice. Yeah, I think I'm done with D D for a while. Like I'll still play in a D D game, but for running games, I'm definitely gonna start looking. Well, I've already um I I mean if I did a book review, it'd be on the Cypher system because I've been reading that book. I bought that book from Monty Cook Games. Montgomery Cook, you beautiful bastard. I read your book. So story about that, that quote right there. Um Monty Cook is uh he wrote Dungeon Master's Guide 3.5, right? Uh I think he also wrote the player's handbook. He and yeah. and those people are the one like those that creative team, if I'm not mistaken, also worked on the Cypher system and Numenera and the Strange as well. Yeah. Yeah. But uh so he was a big name sort of before I feel like there were a lot of big names outside of people who actually worked in the industry. Um, at least I knew who he was, which was surprising. Um reminder then banter topic uh artists do you know their names these days okay anyway Mm -hmm. um and i met him at gen con and we had just he had this campaign setting called tolis that was like Mm -hmm. this like 400 500 page book about just this one city as a campaign setting for your adventures and the bane warrens was the adventure he wrote that was set in Tullus that had things like uh, a, a troll that could ethereal jaunt and detect thoughts or like a hag with a ring of wishing with one wish on it as bad guys, a party of shape-changing monsters that were rivals to the PCs that are going to try and kidnap you. I mean, it was just wonderfully weird, wild, and sort of brutal, but not in an old school, like, you're just fucked because you touched the wrong thing way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met him at at uh, Gen Con, and I said, "Are you Monty Cook?" And he's like, "Yes, I am." And I just said, "You magnificent bastard! I read your book, which is Patton quoting the movie mm-hmm. Patton, yeah, George C. Scott." So yeah, there's always a, I I don't like being a fan of things specifically, and I don't like treating people like celebrities. But Monty Montgomery Cook is that's as close as as I get when it comes to gaming. I will gush about this guy's work well if you want to get over that you can read monty cook's world of darkness okay (laughs) (laughs) all right maybe that'll be my book review but anyway oh god that'd be fucking hilarious (laughs) okay sorry take us out jesse do we have anything else uh no i don't think we do you have been listening to the jaunty mantis i am jesse i'm maddie we are both eternal DMs, but we get to play sometimes. And uh, if you were looking for us, uh, we are at Jaunty Mantis on Twitter and also on Threads. Uh, we do what not is have X? an email. What? What is X? Oh, Twitter. You didn't hear about this? No. So today, Elon Musk revealed that he's rebranding Twitter as of today as X. <laughs> Why? Because he think it sounds cooler and no one will tell him no because he has an insane amount of money. I don't know. Here's the best two factors that I've learned about this. And these are, you know, un- to me right now, unconfirmed internet rumors. So not, not gospel truth. The logo that someone gave him is just a monocode font that they didn't pay any licensing to. Brilliant. Like, so they can't protect the logo um, from being used by other things. And, uh, Microsoft has a trademark for X because of the Xbox. Because of course they do. (laughs) 
as as a company name x mm-hmm. is trademarked by microsoft which uh, yeah and so he just it went live like on your phone screen it was like it says x on it but still says twitter underneath yeah weird uh, and they didn't think it through at all and it's just like oh my god man you took a well-established thing and then was like i'm gonna go in like it's a startup t-. okay anyway that's besides the point well wait a minute wait a minute you know Twitter was terrible before Elon Musk got there. He just yeah, surprised just us worse. all by making it worse somehow, which none of us thought was possible. Well, maybe some of us did, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're still on Twitter or as it's called X. Yeah. Look for us. Seek us on X. X marks the spot mm-hmm. at Jaunty Mantis um, or Wanty because I spelled it wrong. So it's like one. Like Yeah. That's now part of the established podcast lore. Yeah. You could also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I know not everybody likes using Apple Podcasts, but that still is the gold standard when it comes to uh, reach and exposure. And if you if you can find it in your heart to use it and give us a good review, if you like the show, we'd much appreciate that. Um, that That'll would get us, us more likely more to be on your favorite platform sooner. Yeah, yeah, we will be. We'll we'll, we'll start getting on other platforms very soon. Yeah. We're on Overcast. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah, it's a good thing. (laughs) So go, I don't know, play some, go play some fucking games or shit. Go play some fucking games. Is that our, that's, that's it, right? I think, yeah. Until we come up with something better. I don't think we ever will. Okay. All right. Get out there and play some fucking games. (laughs) 